0: Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hi, it's Julie here. Thanks for tuning in. I am so thrilled to introduce our guest, Elizabeth Leiba, founder of Black History and Culture Academy and co-host of the Ed Up podcast. Elizabeth is a social justice warrior, higher education advocate, and an inspiration to all of us. Learn about how Elizabeth discovered her voice and used it to bring awareness and education to black history and social justice. Sit back, grab your favorite Maker's Mark cocktail and get inspired. Liz, welcome to Served Up. Julie
1: and I are just so pleased that you're here with us today. I'm excited. I have been thinking about this all week, so I'm excited and happy to join you today. Me too.
0: Woohoo!
2: Thank you. (laughs) Could you tell us about yourself, Liz? Could you tell us, you know, where did you come from? What was it like for you growing up? And um, how did all those things influence where you are today?
1: That's a really good, great question. And it's something I have gotten more and more comfortable with talking about because I was always a little bit self-conscious about my background. I was really wanting to fit in and not really draw a lot of attention to myself. That's a part of why people are always so surprised that I'm on social media and I'm really outspoken, but I'm kind of like an extroverted introvert in that it's really in my nature not to be necessarily like the center of attention. I prefer to kind of like just watch and see what other people are doing and listen So I'm actually from the UK originally, I was born in London, Uh, I spent majority of my childhood in London, Uh, my parents are Jamaican, so they're immigrants, they were immigrants to the UK, they met there as teenagers, got married, had three kids, I was one of, I'm actually the oldest of three, and we lived in London until I was like 12 and my mom came to visit her mom, my grandmother in Florida. And we were all super excited because it was like, even though we weren't going, it seemed like it would be like a fun thing for her to come back and tell us all about Florida. And when she came back, she's like, you know what, I've talked to your grandmother, and I think we should all move to Florida. And I was like, as kids, we were all like jumping up and down because we were like Disney World and like, seemed like it would be so fun. So we came here and it was like a real like reality check. Because growing up in Fort Lauderdale, I think my mom really wasn't totally prepared. We grew up in a country that, uh, I mean, you're thinking this is like the 80s. So they have socialized medicine there. My dad worked for London Transport, which is where they, you know, the red buses that we always see on TV. So he was a mechanic. My mom was a nurse. She worked in the hospital, relatively middle class, you know, and then we came here and it was like, they had to literally start from scratch. So my dad was working at 7-Eleven as a cashier. My mom became a CNA and they were just trying to figure out what they could do career-wise and have to go back to school, have to get us acclimated to a totally different culture. We were all five of us living in my grandmother's spare bedroom. So that was a little bit, you know, disconcerting coming from having your own room. I had my own room. And then all of a sudden there's five people all on top of each other, sleeping on an air mattress and and just literally on food stamps just eating government cheese like all the things that you think about when you think about people that are struggling we basically lived it because my grandmother was like hey you guys got to figure it out you know I gave you the opportunity to come here so now just make a life this is America kind of like the whole thing of pull yourself up by your bootstrap she was just like hey you know and my parents were I think really shocked because I think on tv we had watched Cosby shows we were like we're gonna go live in a mansion and we're gonna just progress and it just didn't work out that way so they had to kind of figure it out from there and for me a, a lot of me wanting to always fit in was because I was so different right i came from uk we were in a predominantly black neighborhood so it was a culture shock in the sense that i was really different from the other kids and i didn't like standing out so i had to navigate that and went to high school and really kind of fell into this pattern of i need to educate myself about what it, my identity really is because i'm from the UK. My parents are Jamaican. I'm living in a a neighborhood and going to a school where all the kids are from the Caribbean or they're American. And I don't really fit in with any of those things. So I kind of delved into black history as a way to kind of align myself with the culture. Like, what is this culture? I'm black. I appear to be black from all from the outside, but on the inside, I'm so confused about my identity. Like what is my identity actually? So I drew comfort in reading like Maya Angelou and reading Alice Walker and reading Toni Morrison. And I just started to align myself with all these beautiful writers and reading phenomenal women over and over to myself to give me strength when the kids were teasing me on the w- and chasing me home on the way home off the bus and, and, and just drawing strength from the idea that I just became a voracious reader at that point and really delved into African-American literature and African-American history and African culture. And I went to a school, Thank goodness where the teachers were really supportive of that Uh, a lot of the teachers were black and they really, uh, at my high school really encouraged us to really embrace our African roots and our African culture and everyone it was like the 80s and the 90s at that point so a lot of people were reading, uh, you know, the, the Malcolm X autobiography of Barfield, Malcolm X and reading um, Carter G. Woodson, um, Miseducation of a Negro, of the Negro, obviously with Carter G. Woodson being the original, um, the, the founder of Negro History Week that became Black History Month that we just came off celebrating. So I, I really instilled in myself the idea that through learning African culture, African-American culture, it can make me a better person also helped me to understand where I fit in the world. And that's literally how I got to where I am today. Went to University of Florida on a full ride. I went on a full scholarship. I was like, graduated like number five in my class, was the editor of my high school newspaper, had a great experience at University of Florida, and just fell into the idea of I want to teach. I want to be an educator. I want to help other people that probably went through the same experiences that I do. And I've been in higher education for about two decades. I've been an educator for the past 20 years. That's pretty much how I got to where I am at this point. Wow. What a journey, Liz. And
0: you bring up such a great point because, you know, coming from a family of immigrants, my mom and, and, um, my entire side of the family all immigrated from south korea and it was the same thing like everybody has his dream of america you know and at the time her dream was oh my gosh grocery stores and you know beautiful aisles and And then when they come, it's like a new reality. You literally have to start from the beginning. And we see so many stories like that, like people from their countries are in these very high level positions. Even here in Miami, all these people from Latin America, they were doctors, they were this, they come over and you have to start from the right, like you- can pursue the American dream, but you're not gonna start with the dream. You're gonna start on the bottom and and work your way up. So I appreciate you sharing that and also kind of learning your identity and and like what how you relate to your identity through discovering Black history. And I think that, you know, I I know that you have your Black history and, and culture academy. So did that start while you were in, in higher education or did that come
1: later when you started building that curriculum? That's a really good question with black history and culture Academy that actually started a lot later. Uh, I've been in education for 20 years. I started as admissions recruiter. So I worked in the admissions side more on the administrative side of education about 20 years ago. And about a decade ago, I became a college, prof- I be- moved to the faculty side. So I became a college professor and I've worked at probably a dozen schools over the past 10 years I, in the past seven years, also started working as an instructional designer. So my main job, even though I do still teach um, at a couple of schools um, as an adjunct, my main job has been developing curriculum for a small career college in Fort Lauderdale. So literally that's been my focus, I would say, for the past seven years or so, just developing curriculum working with uh, my school on how to develop a really strong online program. And that hap- that's been something that we've been working on for the past few years. And then COVID happened. So right before COVID, I had started being a little bit more active on LinkedIn. Just had been in my career for a while. I'm like, I need to start networking. See, you know, 2020, new year, new me. Little did I know what 2020 was going to bring at that point. It was the beginning of the year. But new year, new me. Let me get on LinkedIn and start just connecting with other people in higher education. I wasn't job hunting. I just really wanted to just, just see what was out there and just develop some some knowledge about some additional knowledge about the field. And I actually had a couple guys that I had seen on LinkedIn reach out to me. They were like, Hey, we have a higher education podcast. Do you want to jump in and join us? You're kind of posting some cute stuff about, you know, black girl magic and, you know, motivational. And we feel like you have a, a like a, a nice, they hadn't heard me talk, but they were like, you have a great Present, so we'd love for you to join us. And I, literally, in January they started the podcast. I joined them in February, and they were like, "You're awesome. Can you just like instead of just guest hosting, we want you to be a part of it." So that was what I was doing. And then COVID happened, and then there was a George Floyd murder that happened. And I, at that point, told them, "You know, I think I'm going to take a step back. The whole podcasting thing right now feels a little frivolous." I I'm not in the right headspace. There's so much going on around the country. And I don't know if I'm necessarily going to be in a good value add to what you're doing right now. Because I just feel like right now, my bandwidth is limited with processing everything that's happening around the country. Looking at every day I, I go on TV and I'm seeing protests and I'm seeing people grieving about everything that they're seeing. And I don't know necessarily if talking about the pivot to online learning and talking about education is really the space that I'm in right now. And actually my, po- my podcast co-hosts, they were like, well, you know, you're developing such a great following on social media. Why not double down? Why not use your platform and actually become even more vocal and, and not, you know, they were kind of really wanted to emphasize the idea that they didn't want to pressure me to do it if it wasn't something I was comfortable with, but they were kind of encouraging of the fact that I had a unique opportunity maybe to utilize some of that momentum and take some of the pain that I was feeling and maybe channel it in a way that might be helpful for me to process. And that's literally what I started doing that day that I had a conversation with them. I decided that I was going to be really vocal and active on social media every single day. And I have kept that promise to myself that every day since that conversation with them, I have decided to make a conscious effort to join my voice, which I feel like is my superpower, my ability to write, my ability to be a leader as far as using my voice as a a change agent. And I just started doubling down on the message of equity, social justice, police brutality, Wealth gap, home ownership, education inequity, healthcare inequity, anything that I thought of that morning, I literally was like, I'm going to post about this on social media, I'm going to talk about it on the podcast, I'm going to press this issue, because people need to be aware of the things that we need to fix. And if we don't talk about them, we can't fix them. And Black History Culture Academy actually came out of at the end of the year, a lot of people saying, Hey, you, you actually are a college professor. I would love to take classes that you're talking about inequity. You're talking about social justice. You're talking about microaggressions in the workplace. It would be awesome if you had a class about this stuff. Cause I would love for you to be my teacher. And I was like, yeah, I am a teacher and in the, in the real sense. I mean, I'm teaching on social media, but I actually do teach college classes. And I just, over the holiday just said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to actually develop a class, like a platform of classes to teach people about social justice and about Black history and and the beauty of it. The same things that I learned in high school. And I wrote uh, a piece for LinkedIn and they highlighted it during Black History Month. And I said, "Black learning Black history saved my life. And I actually do believe that, that the ability to process the world in a sense that I am so amazing internally and I have, I come from a legacy of greatness and to internalize that message is literally what saved me from probably what could have been a life of poverty or not really being successful because that's what I saw around me growing up. And I wanted to create an environment, a a judgment-free environment for adults that maybe have felt some of those feelings of, I don't really understand where I fit in. I mean, people that have been through high school and college, and a lot of people just from surveys and informal conversations I've had on LinkedIn have told me that I didn't learn Black history in high school. I didn't learn Black history in college. I mean, I knew there was Black history month, but I've never really known about redlining. I didn't know about discrimination and how there was so much inequity in K through 12. Like These are things that I was never taught, and I don't know exactly where to start in order to learn those things, and that's why I created it. I wanted to create a platform where the things that I was posting about, I could actually create a structure where someone doesn't have to just go research it and maybe just go on Wikipedia, they can actually take a journey and I usually teach the same way I teach in a classroom which is just bite sized nuggets of information in a storytelling fashion, that can help people to relate to a lot of these, these concepts that seem abstract. Like if you think about redlining, for example, when we think about there's black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods, but people don't understand that a lot of that is from housing discrimination. It's not mm-hmm. that, that black people all want to live in one neighborhood and white people all want to live in one neighborhood. It literally is that by law. And even up until today, a lot of discrimination happens in housing, even though housing discrimination is illegal, there still is a lot of um, spillover from the time when it was legal. And it actually was only considered illegal since the 60s. So we're talking about less than a lifetime ago that banks have been allowed to discriminate and to a certain extent and to a great extent still do discriminate. So there are a lot of these things that people kind of know in abstract that these are things that are going on but don't really understand the the rationale behind why these things are happening, which is why I created the academy. I wanted to create a concrete way of explaining some of these uh, concepts and some of these inequities so that people could wrap their minds around it. And if you're able to wrap your mind around a concept, then if you're fighting or you want to be a social justice warrior you want to be an ally you want to just be informed about what's going on around the country you're not just saying oh i think that there's discrimination you actually have some framework or if you want to understand about the beauty of african culture and the beauty of african american history and why it's so important to understand that then you have a frame of reference rather than just something you know from high school like martin luther king day or you know rosa parks civil rights movement that's not to, not to detract from the idea that that's important to, to learn that but i think We need to have a full spectrum of the history of Black folk in America, and it's just a lot more than Black History Month. It's a lot more than Civil Rights Movement or slavery. It's a whole spectrum of um, history from the beginning of this country and even back before that into ancient Africa that people need to be aware of, and that's literally why I created Black History and Culture Academy. So
2: That is so amazing. Liz, (laughs) you just said so much right there. And I want to thank you for creating all of this as a resource of so many to go and to learn and to be, to be better. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a question for you about the black history and culture Academy. And that is, um, can you tell us about how people can log in, how they can sign up, how do they navigate the site? Like, let's get into that a little bit. Cause you know, um, when we talk about a website, it's always fun to know, is there a cost to it? You know, how does all that work? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think that when I started developing at the end of last year, I wasn't really sure exactly how I was going to structure it, but I just knew I wanted to offer courses. And then I started with the concept of what I want to do is create micro learning. So I want it to be, I don't want it to be like a semester long course, like what I would offer at a university or college level. A lot of working adults are limited on time. And they don't necessarily want to take a college class or they would have done that already. So I wanted to create little short learning modules that somebody could just eat lunch and just learn about something really quickly. And they're very short. At the the current time, there's 20 classes that are available in um, African-American history and culture, African history and culture and diversity, equity, inclusion. So it's really just concepts, just basic concepts. It's not that you're going to be like a historian when you get done with each class, but you will be able to be informed about what I think are the main highlights of whatever that topic is. It's like history of African-American music and uh, uh, African-American music or music and uh, Black music in America. There is African-American literature, contemporary African-American literature. There's African uh, oral literature. There's African music and African uh, religion. So different topics that I'm just like, wow, people don't really know about that African American poetry. Uh, it, when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, some of the courses are what are microaggressions, um, anti-racism language, uh, different things that I think just little highlights of it, just short snippets that give you just a foundational knowledge in the topic. And initially, I wasn't sure the structure. I was like, well, you know, I don't really know how to price it. I know I want to have the value there. And I want to make sure that obviously the amount of time that I invested in it, it gives a value add for someone that wants to learn. So I, I think I initially was going to launch it on January 6. And it was actually the day of the insurrection at the Capitol. Uh-huh. And I remember I was wrapped up in bed and I had a pounding headache and I was crying because I was just like, this is not the world that I want to live in. And I was wrapped up like a burrito. I swaddled myself because I was really, really like shaking and I remember saying to my husband that I was going to do like $199 a class, $199 a class, because I, I just saw that it was kind of like seeing other people that are in my, um you know, p- people that I know that are offering short micro learning courses. That was kind of the price point. Uh, just a, a couple people that I know in higher ed that I've networked with on LinkedIn that offer classes. And I told my husband, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do Netflix style because I don't want there to be any friction. I know that it's... Coronavirus is going on pandemic and a lot of people are w- watching their money of course absolutely you know it's like you you, you don't want to spend extra I you know for me we're buying a lot more groceries the kids are eating up snacks and you know you know you're looking at where you're spending money and I don't want price to inhibit people from being able to take the course if they want to. So I said, I'm going to make it Netflix style. So it's $14.99 a month and unlimited access once someone's subscribed, just like Hulu or any other um, style of uh, subscription stuff. They want to subscribe and they're like, oh, I got enough. They could cancel. Or if they want to keep going, the more, obviously, the longer that they stay um, in subscription, the the courses are growing because I'm adding courses literally every week. I have 20 classes now. I want to have 50 by summer and 100 by the end of the year. That's my goal. So I wanted to just totally make it worthwhile. Every time somebody's like, oh, that would be interesting. I'm like, you know, I think it was MLK day, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And I said, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna roll out a class about the myth and the reality of Martin Luther King. And I just did that on his birthday. Or people are like, oh, you know what? African dance is interesting. So I'm, I'm developing a class about African dance and all the different varieties of African dance and, and uh, all the different like samba and calypso and all the different types of um, derivatives of African dance. Like anything that comes to mind is basically what I've put into the program and can, want to continue to develop because I, I think that there's so many different beautiful aspects of the African diaspora that people can learn about. And it's not just here in the United States. It's all over the globe that uh, people are able to learn about the culture. So when someone goes in, they basically just sign up and they subscribe and then they have access, unlimited access to all the courses. They can pop in and out as they want I've had uh like one of the senior editors at LinkedIn, he signed up. I've had um Bracken Darrell, he's the CEO of Logitech. He signed up like literally what, like the first week and he was like DM me. He said, I love it. <laughs> he's like, I love Yay. your program. I've had college presidents that have signed up and have, you know, said they, they did like a lunch and learn and just sat down. And uh, someone was telling me uh, they didn't know about HBCUs. So they were like, Hey, I, I know this HBCUs, I know that's something that exists, but I wasn't really sure what exactly the the history of them. So I jumped in, ate my sandwich and had my coffee and just took a quick course on HBCU. So that's really the purpose is to give someone the ability in a judgment-free zone. There's there's discussion areas and people are chiming in, almost like LinkedIn, where you can post and people can kind of chime in with their questions and comments. So it's like a community of uh, learning and discourse. People have the ability to learn, but not in... I would say this, it's not a commitment of a college class. It's not like you have to sign up and say, oh, I got to be 16 weeks now learning about this. You can jump in and out as you please and not necessarily have to dedicate so much time, but also not just look at a website and it's like, okay, I kind of think I understand, but it's just not enough. It's not like Wikipedia where you're kind of like, okay, I don't really know if I really got the full gist of what I'm supposed to understand. Um, I think that on LinkedIn, I've developed a network of trust where people know that I'm genuine in wanting to educate about this. Uh, within the first month, I had like 100 students. I have close to 150 students now over the past like six weeks or just, just about two months now. So people have really taken to the idea of having the ability to learn about Black history, and do it in a judgment-free and safe environment. Now Women's History Month, I'm, I'm rolling out some classes about Black women that have been influential, Toni Morrison and other women that have been leaders. So I'm just kind of going with the idea that there's so much to learn about Black history and culture. For me, it's been something that I, I definitely believe in the idea that with familiarity becomes you're able to understand someone more, whether they're coming from a different or marginalized culture that you may not have been exposed to. So I think a lot of it uh, and it may seem a little bit like, oh, that just seems like it's kind of too easy. But I, I worked in addiction treatment and for a long time, I didn't really understand addiction being a mental health issue. My husband had been working in that field for 10 years and I was almost like, well, someone wants to get off drugs. Can't they just try? Can't they just like go to treatment? I always felt like it was very straightforward until I actually worked in the field in admissions uh, for a short time. And I would hear people's stories and, and literally end up getting off the phone crying because I was so touched by the family, what this family was struggling with. And I think sometimes when you're not in a community, you don't really understand the struggle. If you've never talked to someone that's undergoing something and they're they're trying to overcome, it's very easy to sit on the outside and say, well, just try harder. Why can't you just be better? Why can't you overcome? And I think that sometimes that's what happens in the black community. You have the greater community at large that maybe doesn't understand you know, just some of the struggle and it becomes a little bit easier to just say, well, you know, I struggle to like, you know, with me, I'm just like, well, I drink, but I don't drink to excess. So there's an idea of if someone's addicted to something, why can't they just do what I did, which is I just don't overdo it. Right. So I think sometimes when we're not challenged with something, it becomes easy to be a little bit linear in our thinking and not as empathetic as we should be. And I definitely had to check myself when I worked in that field because I saw that that, what I was thinking was to- I had to reframe. And I think sometimes the education is what's lacking because I saw that happen literally within a few months. I totally reframed the way I looked at that community because I knew that I was mistaken in my attitude. So I-, I feel as though education can do that. If you're exposed to something enough, you have the ability to reframe how you approach certain people that are not, that don't look like you or don't have the same experience that you have. But the exposure is the key. And I think sometimes it's uncomfortable for people to be exposed to something that's different. So my hope is by having these courses that people are exposed, if they're open enough to learn, then they can be exposed to something that's totally different than maybe what they thought or what they were, are familiar with. And with that familiarity, hopefully becomes empathy. And maybe there comes uh, allyship. And with allyship should come change. And, and that's literally what my, uh, my hope and aspiration is for the platform
0: and relatability right i mean because the i think what a lot of people don't understand is that africans have a huge impact all over the world in many countries you know if you think of like latin america i mean there's a lot of african influence in the brazilian community you know and i mean like the most beautiful people in the world have african in them right so it's just i think learning more about that about the culture and the history adds a lot of that relatability but I did want to say, if you had 150 students, you have 151 now, because I signed up today. And
1: oh, congratulations. Excited. Thank Good. you. It's only $14.99 a month, so yep. it's super. It's important. so easy. It's like, it's like uh, a couple lattes or something, she would say. A couple Starbucks lattes per month. So hey, I, if I can to make get it...
0: edu- Yeah, if I could get educated for $14.99, I'm going to do the courses with my husband Aww, and my son, and we're going to do awesome. it together. And I, and I love you know, and I've told you this before, you know, I've been following you on LinkedIn and I just realized today that I've been following you, but we weren't connected. So I sent you a connect. Oh, of course. Message, yes, for sure. sure we would so definitely like, connect. Why is she a second? You know, cause yeah. it tells you if you're a first or a second. Right. Right. And, um, but I have been following you for so many months. And I mean, your content is just like, boom, straight to the point, right? Mm -hmm. Like right there. It's so impactful. You are a warrior. You're a bold leader. And I cannot believe that you've, I mean, I know you've been in education your entire life over 20 years. And I know that you're that expert and professional master in higher education, but the fact that you've done all of this in the last year And I saw that you celebrated what it was a week ago, two weeks ago of getting 40,000 followers on LinkedIn. I mean, you were like a time bomb ready to explode. And it was like, (laughs) your time is -hmm. 2020.
1: Yeah, it's funny how that worked out. Because I think if you would have asked me 2019, would all of this have happened in 2020? I probably would have been like, no, no way. I started 2020 on a podcast. By the middle, toward the end of 2020, October, I was highlighted in the New York Times on the front page on on the Sunday edition as one of the outspoken voices on LinkedIn. Right after that, there was the LinkedIn top voices for education right around Thanksgiving. I had an op-ed piece in CNN about my uh, experience being racially profiled when I was in college, and it was linked to the idea of Kyra Rittenhouse and, and some of the the young people that are in the majority culture and how our black and brown children are criminalized and how we need to make sure that we have a fair system. And I kind of compared it to my own situation of being racially profiled and arrested. When I was in college, that happened to me. I was falsely accused of shoplifting and, and and, uh, stealing some batteries out of a a pharmacy, which I had the receipt, but I just couldn't find it at the time. And um, that article that I did for CNN that went viral. It had like 2 million hits on their website. So there's been a lot that has happened over the past year that I've just been like, wow, this is like almost unbelievable. I have about 43, I'm getting like about a thousand followers a day, I think somewhere around there. So I'm probably somewhere past 43,000 followers, I guess, as of this week. Cause I think I posted that earlier in the week and I'm getting like a thousand followers a day. So, yeah, I would not have ever thought that this would happen. And I think for a long time, I felt as though if I spoke out about certain things, even like about getting arrested, I was really embarrassed when CNN approached me and asked me, did I want to do the op ed piece? I was a little bit hesitant because it wasn't I posted about it on LinkedIn, but it definitely wasn't something up until that time that I had been vocal about. It was actually something that I was ashamed, even though I ended up winning a lawsuit a civil lawsuit against the company that called the police and, and the charges were dropped because I did have a receipt and I presented that to the state attorney right after I was arrested, was bailed out by my mom. And I remember my mom, I was driving home. She picked me up from the County jail in Gainesville. Cause it was like in, um, this college town where I attended college. And I remember her saying, well, they, they offered to let you sign a no trespass and just admit, like, why didn't you just sign the no trespass? And I was like, no, oh I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to admit something when I, know. And she's like, well, they would have let you go home. And I'm like, but then I would have had that in my head that they had a paper that I admitted something. I don't care. Even if they put it in a file and no one ever saw it. I don't want a paper signed by me saying that I stole something which I know I didn't especially not a two dollar item that's absolutely ridiculous I'm not going to do that so even at 19 I think I had a, a good sense of standing up for what was right and wrong and I remember going to the attorney and literally it's like open and shut uh, I found the receipt on the way home as I was talking to my mom I was rifling through my book bag I'm like I know the receipt is in here somewhere and it was tucked inside a folder the whole time they actually had my stuff at the jail obviously they gave me back my book bag when I um bonded out i went to the lawyer in gainesville pre- gave him the receipt he was like oh this is open and shut." he's like i just send them a receipt and obviously they're gonna have to drop the charges which he did like right after and i remember talking to him and he said you know what we're gonna do we're gonna sue them we're gonna go ahead and pursue a civil lawsuit because i have never seen anything like this i've been practicing law for a good amount of time and he was white and he was very open and transparent he's like they would not have done this except for your race. And they literally racially profiled you because what excuse could they have? You are a college student. You clearly did not leave the store. They didn't witness you stealing it. And they literally did not follow their own protocol, which says, if we're going to call the police, we have to witness, we have the person has to leave the store. There's all these different checkpoints to make sure that they limit their liability. And they just didn't follow their own store policy, let alone just a policy of, if, he was like, if, if they really were going to be so hard on you, they probably could have just took the batteries and told you to go home. And I'm like, I would have took that. That I would have taken, <laughs> but not signing it to say that I actually did steal them. So we pursued a lawsuit, and actually it took three years because my lawyer kept saying, just just give her, just throw her a few thousand dollars and she'll leave. She'll leave you alone, but you have to be responsible. You have to you have to pay some kind of some kind of reparation to her for what you did. I I almost dropped out of school because I was so just so traumatized by everything that happened. You know, I think sometimes when people see racial profiling on the news or they see people that are arrested and they're like, oh, why didn't the person just comply? Or you, there's nothing, I would not wish this on my worst enemy to be sitting in the back of a police car. There's no door handles. I tell people, you know, there's no door handles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in handcuffs, which are super heavy. I always tell people, did you know that they're not light like the ones you see in the, the Halloween store? Mm-hmm. And you know that you're going to jail. And when I got there, there were people that I'm like, I didn't do anything, but I'm pretty sure these women that are screaming and yelling and walking around in orange jumpsuits did do something probably. And I remember even the, the, um, going into the, the, the jail and them saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to put you in holding, but we're not going to put you in a cell because you don't even look like you belong here. Like they might eat you alive if we put you in a cell with somebody. So having all that and knowing that There are people every day that are being arrested. There are people every day that are being brutalized. And I wanted to kind of just put a face on that, that it doesn't mean that just because someone's arrested, sometimes we rush to judgment and think, oh, well, you're arrested. Then that means you did something wrong. I think anyone can be arrested because it's just probable cause. And then that's really up to a judgment call. And sometimes it could be like in my situation where it was just literally my word against theirs and the police officer's like, well, they say they, they want you to be arrested. And the only way you can get out of it at this point is to sign this no no, uh, this no, uh, trespass. And he told me if I signed it, he would let me go. And I was like, I'm not. So you can, I guess I, my only choice is to go to jail. And he was like, well, you you made your choice. So let's go ahead and get the handcuffs on you. So I think that for me, a lot of speaking out has just been this idea of letting my story be told. And I definitely know that it's, you know, it has definitely been a roller coaster. If you would have told me a year ago, I would have been even talking about that. I would have said no, because I was ashamed and I didn't want to ever talk about it again. It was actually very triggering. And I think that it's actually been a relief to be transparent and talk about things I've struggled with, because I know that a lot of other people are struggling with things that sometimes feel insurmountable or feelings or trauma that feels insurmountable. And I always want to, let people know that if I can overcome it, it's possible. If you are able to sometimes find a community of support, like what I found on LinkedIn, and people like you, Julie, that have supported me and have just been like, wow, you're awesome. And it gives me that motivation to keep going. It gives me the motivation to keep speaking out, to keep thinking about inequity, to th- keep uh, amplifying the voices of women. Just now during Women's History Month, there's so many great women that have come before. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. And if we're able to do and, 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 and make their legacy come alive, then it's really, I think, our responsibility to do so. And that's really what keeps me going.
2: Absolutely, your story is a such an inspiring inspiring one, and thank you for being so bold and um, so fearless, and you know taking the time to share your story with us because it's it's an important one. And um, I, and I also want to let you know that you have 152 subscribers. Yeah, so thank you. <laughs> and I too will be sharing your site with my husband and with my daughter as thank well. You because I, I think it's super important. Y'all are going to make me cry now. So let's,
1: <laughs> not, let's not do that. <laughs>
2: well, we, we've cried on super here before. Yeah, <laughs> we, we, we almost like cry on here. Yeah, right. Uh, it's it's you, emotional, you know.
1: Yeah. You,
2: you know, you mentioned something because we are in um, Women's History Month right now. And I just want to talk to you a bit about, because it's something I talk to my daughter about all the time. And we mentioned, you know, recently on one of our live um, broadcasts that we do on Clubhouse with Served Up, and that is, you know, can you tell us, you know, why is it important to know about your ancestors? Why is it important to tap into um, the spirit of which you came to continue
1: the momentum of what you're doing? That's such a good question. It's something I really wholeheartedly believe in. Mm -hmm. I think that each of us has so much power within us and we have so many gifts that we can share with the world and everybody's gift is different. So I think sometimes people ask me, like, what can I do or, you know, how can I be a social justice warrior? What are some things I can do to help I always tell people everyone has their sphere of influence. So if you're a mom, you, know, you're, you have the ability to teach your children. If you work in HR, you can help people in that way. If you work in marketing, maybe you can work on images and, and creating a narrative that people can have inspiration from. So I think as far as pulling on the ancestors, they, like, when we think about this idea of standing on the shoulders of giants, they have the blueprint. They are the ones that have already shown us the way. They've made this journey already. And I always feel as though when I'm speaking, I'm speaking their story. I'm living their dream. I am the ancestor's legacy. And sometimes I think, and it's giving me goosebumps right now, that some of those that came before us, if we had to maybe even be in their shoes for a day, we would be like, wow, this is a lot to overcome. So I think it's our responsibility to carry the torch for them. They're not here now, but we have so much that we can do to continue to fight in their names. So being able to do that and draw on that strength, I think, has literally been what keeps me going. I don't think there's a time that I speak that I don't talk about Shirley Chisholm and Maya Angelou and Toni Morrison and so many Audre Lorde, uh, the U.S. versus... Um, Billie Holiday just came out that movie and I was like wow she had to overcome so much just because she wanted to sing Strange Fruit and help people to understand just how awful it was that the lynchings that were happening and out of those 4,000 people that were lynched in the south during that time frame about 400 of them were women Mm -hmm. Uh, if you think about this idea some of these women even pregnant women that were lynched at the hands of lynch mobs raped and then lynched even and her willingness to put her own well-being her own fame her own safety on the line just to make sure that those women and men's stories didn't go untold that is that is the ultimate sacrifice so if someone can do that then i think all of us can make a change or a difference in whatever way that we can. With her, it was her beautiful voice that she used, but all of us have gifts. So how do we use those effectively to change the world, to bring justice, peace, equity, whatever it is that we can do to make the world a better place for ourselves, but even more importantly for our children, for the next generation, I think is pivotally important. It's something I think about every single day.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's so powerful. And I think that it's such a great time to reflect, you know, uh, and, you know, like I've said, and, and we've talked about this before, and I say to everybody else, whether, you know, we're talking about Black History Month, or Women's History Month, it's 365 days of the year that we need to have this conversation. And we need to celebrate our Black ancestors, our Black, you know, the black people that have paved the way. And there's so many stories to celebrate and so many great things to talk about as well as woman history. And there's a lot of horrible things that we need to be aware of. And we need to talk about because we don't learn that in school. But I think one of the things that really struck me is I've, you know, being somebody that comes from mixed race and always kind of never feeling like I fit in when I'm with white people, I'm always different. I, with my Korean family and I'm, the The white girl I'm different, you know, so I never really fit in, so I just naturally grew up with a lot of diverse friends, and that was just who I really felt connected to and you know working at southern and and wor- moving up in leadership roles, I was always advocating as a as a woman and um and woman rights and and woman and gender equality and I think with this eruption of social justice and with George Floyd, you recognize that you can't be for gender equality if you're not for race equality. And I don't think we talk about it enough because sometimes I see what's being promoted during Women's History Month and it's the same. You don't see that diversity. I think people might be a little bit more aware now, but it's like we get back to that same, you know, I I would love to know your thoughts on
1: that. That is such a good point, and I'm glad that you brought that up because it's been, I think, a sticking point in the whole diversity, equity, inclusion discussions and the push for equity across the country is that with a lot of DEI uh, initiatives across uh, the, the, the corporate spaces over the past few years, there has been that push that we need to be more inclusive and we are Moving in the right direction. But I do feel as though that piece of women need to be at the table, women need to be acknowledged, women need to be heard has been emphasized a little bit more because I think it goes back to that empathy piece, right? We all have a mom, we women all have women in our, our lives, daughters. we all have women in our lives, we have daughters, we have cousins, we have sisters. So I think the familiarity is like you said, the familiarity piece is a little bit more prevalent. And if you're a man, I mean, if you have a daughter, you have a wife, do you really want your wife to be mistreated? Do you want your daughter to be mistreated? I think it it almost reminds me of the LGBTQ community where I think for a long time, there was a a lot of backlash. And then people were like, Hey, my brother came out of the closet or my sister is getting married into another woman and we're supporting her. We love her either way. So I think that familiarity has made people just be, I saw it in the addiction treatment field as well. A lot of people were like shunning people that were addicts. And then it was like, people are getting addicted to prescription pain medication and people saw, Hey, it hits home. Cause it's in my own family. I see it. So I think sometimes the more that you're exposed to something, it does give you the ability to be a little bit more empathetic. And like you said, if you grew up in a more diverse community, then you can kind of see across all aspects of diversity. And I think that's definitely a big issue that Women's rights are being pushed. And obviously the intersectionality of myself being a woman, I I want that. I want women to be acknowledged. I want women to have positions of leadership. But we are seeing more of that push. And, and like you said, you can't have equality for women and equity for women without acknowledging the idea that race equity is still very problematic. And we need to address all aspects of equity regardless of what marginalized community you come from. So if you're coming from the POC, if you're coming from the indigenous community, if you're in the black community, if you're a woman, we have neurodiverse. We have differently abled. We have LGBTQ. We need to be empathetic to anyone that's different because all of us have privilege. I always say, well, I'm a married woman, so I may be seen as a hetero norm, but I still know that it's not fair for someone to be discriminated against because of their sexual identity, their orientation. That's not right. So I can still advocate, and I still do advocate for that because I have privilege, so I want to make sure that I make my voice loud, that that's just a no-go. We need to make sure that everyone feels comfortable, everyone is included, everyone is at the table. And until we make sure everyone is addressed, then we, we can't just say, oh, Women's History Month, yay for women. We have to make sure all of these different marginalized groups are acknowledged and feel included and feel feel a sense of belonging. And until we do that, then I'm going to keep raising my voice really loud because everybody needs to be at that table. And I'm going to be pulling up folding chairs, I'm going to put a stool there, I'm going to put a bar stool, whatever, whatever, a beach chair, whatever I can to make sure all of us are crowded around that table, because we all need to have our voices heard. But very particularly, um, Black folk in America do have a particular set of circumstances that was very different from other marginalized communities. So we do need to make sure that we're acknowledging that. And it's not seen as well, hey, just lump everybody together. And, you know, whoever gets, you know, to the top of the pile, I think that's something that's problematic as well, where you have everyone kind of lumped under a diversity umbrella, and we still are not addressing the particular needs of each community. So I'm glad you brought that up, because it's very, extremely important as well. Yep. And I think you
0: make 100%. You know, you're right there. It's that relatability because you also see that um, the ones that, uh, you know, the women that relate more to their colleagues, whether they're from the same area or they like the same sports, you know, do get that further opportunity because of that relatability. And I think everything you're doing, everything that you're speaking of, having, you know, the Black History and Culture Academy is what's going to help people relate more because the more you learn, the more you relate, and we're so thankful to have you. I know we could talk to you all night long. No, you guys you've are awesome. You have got your other podcast, and I appreciate that so much. We didn't even get there, so we are going to have to have you back on, yes. and we're going to have to have our a live session on served up. But um, yes. I, we're so grateful for you, Liz. Oh yes. my gosh, thank you guys,
2: Liz. I, you know, we just we want to thank you so much for for sharing, you know, for being vulnerable with us today. And Julie's favorite word is being bold because <laughs> you are very bold and so inspiring. Mm-hmm. So
1: we, you appreciate guys filled feel like your- I'm like virtually on the, on the edge of tears because oh, you guys definitely gave me life today for oh, good. sure. Good, oh, good, good, good. So Well, I'm
2: on behalf of Julie and myself, I want to just wish you um, so much peace and just, great health and just know that um, we want you to come on the show again. (laughs) I will
1: come back anytime you guys will have me. This has been a blast. I have enjoyed it so much. You guys are amazing. And I really appreciate this opportunity. This has been wonderful.
0: We appreciate you so much. And I'm so glad you're very close by. So we are going to have to meet up live yes, in person. We prepping. will. We are yes, going we to. <laughs> yes, we will. Definitely. Out, outdoor dining. That's for outdoor sure. Outdoor dining. There yeah, we go. Exactly. Absolutely. I'm there. Cheers. Take care, Liz. Thank Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Killed the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!